Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here for TCC at home. Uh, so thankful for our time together. Uh, grateful to be able to worship. Thankful for Brandon and Natalie leading us. Uh, as we come to this morning, we really want to celebrate the truth that we just sang, that, that God is sovereign over us. Uh, as we now are on the other side of Easter, uh, we are going to actually jump back into the book of Daniel. Um, earlier this year, we began walking through Daniel chapter 1 through 6. Um, it was you know, back when we, uh, we actually met in person for church. I don't know if you remember that. That was a little while ago now. But uh, way back then, uh, when we did that, we walked through Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And in chapters 1 through 6, what, what you find in the book of Daniel is uh, the experiences of a man named Daniel and, and three of his friends, actually, uh, as they're taken into exile uh, in Babylon and called to, to, to live faithfully uh, in exile. And, and really the message in chapters 1 through 6 is this call to faithfulness in the midst of exile. As God's people today, we ourselves are also exiles. Not because we've been defeated and taken captive into another land, but because we belong to God through faith in Christ, we have an identity as exiles, we are not at home. We, we are journeying towards and longing for the home that God has for us. And, and so in, in those chapters, we saw that God really has a message for the world that he wants to use his people to bring to the world and that he wants to uh, sustain and strengthen us so that we might live faithfully in exile. Well, now in the, the second half of the book of Daniel, uh, the, the message uh, is, is still the same that God is sovereign over us, but the, the content uh, drastically changes in Daniel chapter 7 through 12. And in many ways, you could compare uh, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 to, to kind of a, a cinematic movie. It's, a, it's an action-packed film that's full of, full of imagery and, uh, and vivid detail about the world that's to come. And so if the message in Daniel chapter 1 through 6 is that we're to be faithful in exile, the message in Daniel's chapter 7 through 12 is that we find ourselves between two worlds, the world that is now and the world that is to come. And God is speaking to his people uh, to encourage, to challenge, uh, to strengthen them as they wait for his deliverance. And so that's, that's where we want to uh, spend these next four weeks is looking at Daniel's chapter 7 through 12 and, and considering what it means to be between two worlds, what it looks like to live in our world now with a longing for the world to come, for a longing for God's kingdom uh, to fully come. And, and so as I think about where we find ourselves today and, and the book of Daniel, uh, especially these last six chapters, uh, these last six chapters are, are considered uh, in, in kind of Bible terminology apocalyptic literature. Uh, it's the kind of stuff that we're often fascinated with. It's similar to the book of, of Revelation. These, uh, these are the books that deal with the details about really the, the end of the world. Uh, they, they fascinate us, they confound us, they confuse us. Uh, but, but a defining characteristic of, of this type of literature is that it's full of symbolic language uh, that points to, uh, to true uh, realities concerning the end of the world and what God is going to do at the end. Uh, it's, a, it's a message that comes to to God's people in their present world and encourages them with truth about the world to come. Some, someone has described apocalyptic literature as, as crisis literature. And I, as I heard that description, I thought to myself, how fitting uh, that we find ourselves in a crisis like we do. And here we are in Daniel chapter 7 through 12, dealing with some crisis literature that conveys a specific message to a group of people caught in a dire situation. 
It announces, uh, this author said, an end to the way that things are and points forward to life after God's intervention. You could, you could say that it proclaims hope to God's people who often feel forsaken and alone. It's a, a message that reminds us that God is presently sitting on his throne, that he is sovereign over us, that he is in control of all things, and that ultimately he wins. That's the message of Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is that God wins and as his people we must keep our eyes on him. And when I, when I break down what apocalyptic literature is and, and I think uh, I press into this point because it's just helpful to frame our, our understanding as we come to God's word of, of what we're reading and, and, and how we should understand it and interpret it as well as apply it to our life. There really are three messages that, that you find in apocalyptic literature and, and in turn it's three messages that we find in, in Daniel chapter 7 through 12. The first is this, that it's a, a message of, of encouragement uh, that, that God is with his people who are oppressed uh, and who are in, in crisis. It's a, a message to encourage God's people. Uh, but it's also a, a message of warning uh, to those who, who oppress God's people, to, uh, to those who oppose God. Apocalyptic literature in the book of Daniel here in these final chapters come and it gives this warning to anyone uh, who opposes God and rebels against him and speaks of God's coming judgment. And then, and then in a, a final way, it's a, a call to faith, a call to faith to anyone who is maybe sitting on the fence, wavering between trusting in God's truth and, and trusting in, in human wisdom, trusting in the way that things are in the world. It's that invitation that says, here's God who, who is in control of all things and is working all things out for the good of his people. He's inviting you to trust in him and no longer work against him, no longer oppose him. So as we walk through uh, these chapters over the next few weeks, I, I want those messages to, to be on our minds, this message of encouragement to God's people that he's with us and working for our good, this message of warning to anyone who, will, who is resisting God and who's uh, pushing off what it, what it means to surrender to him and put their trust in him. And then finally, that message or a call to faith to anyone who's yet to reach out and take hold of him and trust in him. As I thought about this, it brought to my mind a few, a few cooking shows. I don't know if I thought about food and cooking because that's what we do when we're stressed. I don't know if you've done any stress eating this week, but that's what came to my mind when I, when I thought about what's taking place in these final chapters in the book of Daniel. I thought about two shows, the, the Iron Chef show. I don't know if you recall watching that. They usually bring in like top chefs to, to compete against an up-and-coming kind of chef and, and it's this massive kitchen and they've got sous chefs and they're doing all kinds of amazing uh, techniques and, uh, and bringing together this uh, magnificent kind of plate to present to the judges. Uh, then, then there's a, another show that came out a while ago that's a little bit more relatable, at least to me, uh, and it's called America's Worst Cooks uh, or America's Worst Chefs. Uh, and, and the idea is they bring in kind of the, the home chef who doesn't have any idea what they're doing, but who wants to grow and who's willing to to embarrass themselves on national TV, and they give them a meal to cook that's way beyond uh, their capacity, and uh, they do their best, you know, to, to come up with this meal and, and hope and pray that it's edible, you know, at the end. Uh, and when you think about these, these cooking shows, 
Uh, anytime you watch a cooking show, it doesn't matter what it is, you pick your, your favorite one. Uh, when they're in the midst of cooking, and there's always a timer, right? Like uh, There's always a timer and a countdown to the end. Uh, when, when the cooking is happening in the kitchen, it's, it's really chaos, People are running left and right. People are spilling things. They're, they're burning something. You know, something doesn't work out, and they have to start over. And, you know, that two minutes at the end seems like 15 minutes. Uh, but uh, they, they have to, to get it all done in time and get the plate clean and get it ready to, to be presented. But the, the one thing that's true, regardless of the show, is that in the kitchen there's chaos. But there's a difference between the Iron Chef and America's worst chefs. In one the chef is in control. Even though there's chaos, the chef is ultimately in control and is working to produce this beautiful uh, plate to be presented uh, to, to the judges. While in the other, the chef really has no idea what they're doing, and they're hoping and praying that they, they can get something out that's, uh, that's at least uh, possible to be eaten by the judges. Uh, the, the difference in the chaos is that in, in one of them, like the Iron Chef, there's, a, there's an expert judge who's in the midst of that chaos working out a plan, while in the other, uh, the chaos really is just that, chaos without any source of hope that it's going to work out on the other end. If, if you think about it, when we look at Daniel 7 through 12, it's going to paint a picture of chaos. It's going to paint a picture of the end of time. Uh, that, that will make us all step back and go, wow, that's, that's, that's a scary image. That's a, a frightening picture. But in that chaos, it's going to say that God is at work. God is working in the chaos and will bring about his kingdom promises in Jesus Christ for the good of his people. Let me say that again. When you look at Daniel chapter 7 through 12, the overarching theme that we will see is that God is working in the chaos and will bring about his kingdom promises in Jesus Christ for the good of his people. So let's look at, at Daniel chapter 7, uh, starting here in verses 1 through 12. Uh, we see uh, in, in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And then Daniel is going to begin in, chapter, in verse 2 uh, to unpack this dream that he had. But if you're familiar with what goes before in Daniel 1 through 6, the, the tables are turned. Uh, in the earlier chapters, uh, God gives visions and dreams to, to the kings, uh, and Daniel gets called upon to interpret. Now God has a vision for Daniel, uh, and Daniel is the one looking for interpretation it's a reminder in, in, in Daniel 1 through 6, God had a message for the world that he wanted his people to deliver. Here we see that God's got a message for his people that he wants us to hear. And that's my prayer for us, that, that we would have ears to hear this message. And the first truth that we see here in these verses is that God rules over all nations. Uh, in, in verse 2, Daniel says, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. And in verses 3 through 8, it says that in that great sea arose four different beasts. And, and the beasts are, are quite a scene. And we'll, we'll look at them here uh, in just a minute. But the four beasts that we see in verses 3 through 8, uh, we actually get a little bit of a, a clue down in verse 16. If you were to look in uh, chapter 7, verse 16, uh, it says that the, the kings or the, the beasts, the four great beast, uh, actually in verse 17, refer to and speak of four kings. So the, the beasts are representing kings or kingdoms. And 
Uh, and, and really, chapter 7 goes hand in hand with chapter 2 uh, of the book of Daniel. And these two chapters kind of work together. And, uh, and interestingly, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in his dream, it's not beast, but it's a statue. And it's a statue made of different kinds of metals, of, of gold and, and silver and bronze and, and iron and clay. And there in chapter 2, we, we see that the, the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar has is really a vision, uh, this statue that speaks to four different kingdoms that are going to come. Uh, the head of gold is, is Babylon, and uh, then the, the, the chest and the arms of silver are the Medo-Persian Empire, and then uh, the, the middle and thighs of bronze are uh, a reference to the Greek Empire, and then finally the feet of iron and clay, it's believed to be a reference to the, to the Roman Empire kingdom. Uh, and so in light of chapter 2, what we're seeing in chapter 4, we can, we can kind of get a sense of perhaps what these vision, what this vision is is referring to, but, but let's dig in a little bit and, and see what Daniel's saying. This is, I think, in some parts, uh, in some ways, when we look at these beasts and we look at uh, the, the totality of chapter 7, it reminds us when we think about this kind of uh, passage in the Bible or we think about the book of Revelation, on one hand, people are fascinated by these things, and so uh, they go overboard and, and, and look at it and break down all the details and come up with some fanciful interpretation. Uh, and on the other hand, some people are so scared of them uh, that they just ignore them. Um, and, and in fact, if you want to look up uh, sermons on Daniel 1 through 6, they, they are uh, a plenty. Uh, you can find all kinds of them. If you want to look up sermons on Daniel 7 through 12, uh, you can't find very many. And the ones that you find have some really crazy charts uh, that go along with them. But um, we, we neither want to be uh, you know, enamored with, with this kind of end times teaching, nor do we want to dismiss it or ignore it. But we want to look at it as, as it presents itself in God's word, understand it appropriately as it was intended, and seek to understand God's message to us in the midst of it. And so here we see that the sea uh, is, uh, is stirred up and these beasts come up out of the sea. And it, it's interesting, uh, in an ancient culture and often in the Bible, the sea is a symbolic reference to, uh, to chaos and, and to rebellion and uh, speaks of uh, the instability of the nations and, uh, and, and those who oppose God. And so uh, the, the seas are stirred up and out of this chaos come the these beasts that, that are opposing God and opposing his people. And the first beast is a lion with eagle's wings. Uh, most people see this as representative of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. It says that the wings of the lion are clipped off and, uh, and, and in verse, in verse uh, 4. And, and it says that they were plucked off and then the lion was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a mind of man was given to it. A lot of people see in this the reference back to King Nebuchadnezzar's experience of basically going insane when he pridefully lifts himself up over God. God humbles him, uh, drives him mad, and then restores him once he uh, sees the error of his way and turns to God. Uh, so we see this first beast, which is a lion with eagle's wings, which speaks of kind of the, the swift and, and ferocious nature of the Babylon empire that, that, that defeated kingdoms, defeated Israel, and took them into captivity. Uh, and then after this beast comes another beast, and this beast is a bear that's raised up in one side, and, and the bear uh, demonstrates kind of brute strength, and this is often seen as a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire, and uh, the bear's on one side, which kind of uh, is seen as a reference to the, the, the strength of the Persian aspect of the empire, and there's this almost 
insatiable desire for, um, uh, for destruction. Uh, the, the bear is said to arise and, um, and devour much flesh in verse 5. And then after this beast, there's another one, a leopard with wings and four heads. And, and so at this point, uh, I hope you're not going to sleep anytime soon. The, the pictures that are unfolding are, are bizarre. Uh, and this leopard with four wings and, and, and four heads uh, is often seen as representative of the, of the Greek empire. And, and we know from Alexander the Great, in 10 years' time, he conquers all kinds of, uh, of nations. And it's legend that after he conquered the last nation, he wept that there weren't any more nations to defeat. Uh, and so there was this swift and quick rise to power. And, uh, and then the Greek empire ends up breaking up into four uh, different uh, smaller kingdoms, and, and which may be representative of these four heads. And then finally, the fourth beast. It really defies all characteristic. It's a beast that's unlike any of the other ones. It's not even given a reference. It's just described as a terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong beast in verse 7. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And then it had ten horns, and these ten horns, it says, were coming up out of its head. And then there was this other horn that rose up, a little horn, uh, that uh, ends up plucking up three of the other horns by their roots. And, and behold, the horn uh, had eyes like the eyes of man and the mouth speaking great things. Um, it's all very plain. I'm sure you, you understand what's being said here, right? Like there, I know for me, when I, when I read this, you, you just kind of have to step back and say, okay, what exactly is happening here? What, what is this speaking of? And, uh, and, and we know, as we said, it's referencing these kingdoms, one kingdom coming after another kingdom. And, and the kingdoms of this world are often defined by, uh, by brute strength and violence and uh, defiance against God and pride. Uh, and, and really, uh, we, we then see these ten horns that, that speak to this type of absolute power uh, that are growing out of this fourth uh, beast. And uh, like I said, some people, as they look at these passages, they, they look at the fourth beast as a reference to, to the Roman Empire. And uh, and the, the kingdoms that splinter off the Roman Empire in the future. And, um, and, and I think that that may indeed be um, a reference to what's going on here. But interestingly, there's this reference to a little horn that rises up and, uh, and seems to overpower uh, some of the other kingdoms. Again, all of these imageries are, are really focused in on kings and kingdoms. Uh, and this particular reference to this little horn who is described as being like a man, having the eyes of man and mouth speaking great things, when we understand this in light of the New Testament, uh, we see that the New Testament speaks of, of a man that will rise up, that will oppose God, deny Christ, deceive God's people, uh, lead God's people astray. Um, but it describes this little horn as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or the Antichrist in 1 John 1, 2 through 8. Uh, and, and we have these, these references to this figure who arises at the end of time that opposes God and uh, deceives God's people. And when, when you look at these references, it's kind of hard to know who is this person, who is this little horn, or who is this antichrist or man of lawlessness that the Bible is talking about. Uh, but <clears throat> I think the point that, that, that should be pressed home here is that the identity of the antichrist or the lawless one or the little horn that Daniel 7 is talking about, uh, it's, I think, intentionally left unclear. But, but what is clear is that there is a spirit that exists today that denies God, 
that, that opposes God's people, that seeks to lead people astray and away from God's truth, that desires to trip up and ensnare those who would want to follow God. In fact, when you look in the New Testament in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and in fact now there are many Antichrists who have come, therefore know that it is the last hour. See, it has this kind of two-pronged point that there is a spirit of the Antichrist, of this opposition to God and leading people astray. But at the end of time, there will be one who comes who will be raised up and seek to, to deny God and lead people astray. And so what do we do with all of these images? And what exactly uh, is Daniel trying to say to us and is God trying to reveal to Daniel? I think it's reasonable that the fourth beast might be a reference to the Roman Empire. But, but I, I also think that uh, we should point out that Daniel goes to great lengths to say that this fourth beast is unlike the other beast. It's unlike anything he's seen. It's totally different beyond description. Uh, in fact, if, um, if you really uh, aren't interested in sleeping tonight, uh, you can read Revelation 13, and the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 are describing one beast in Revelation 13. Uh, and it kind of reminds us, when you look at this type of literature in the Bible, uh, it, it often reveals recurring patterns that, that show up. And, and here, what I think it's, it's identifying is a recurring pattern of, of earthly kingdoms that oppose God and His purposes. I like how, how one commentator put it. He said, I would prefer to think that this fourth beast is, is the different kingdom and understand it as the last kingdom, the one in which human evil and rebellion will reach its apex. So, so what Daniel's saying here and what God's revealing is that uh, as Daniel is in exile in Babylon, God's saying, look, kingdoms are going to rise and fall. The, the end isn't going to come when you are delivered from Babylon, God is telling his people Israel in this moment. But kingdoms are going to come afterwards who are going to be more powerful and who are going to cause greater destruction. And, and it's, it's going to, to come to a point where there's going to be a, a great opposition to God and to his people. Um, know that, that there is uh, evil at work in the world, that, that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and that these earthly kings and these earthly empires set themselves up against God. And that seems really out of touch uh, for us, but, but what we can't forget is that God is speaking to his people to encourage them. When all these other things seem chaotic and out of our control and, and these kingdoms and empires and kings uh, disrupt your life and seek to destroy God, God's purposes and his people, God has a message. And that message is now revealed in verses 9 through 12 through a really hard uh, shift in the scene. If, uh, if this were a, a motion pic a picture, you, you would see this as a hard scene shift. This is a, a, a strong shift away from what had been happening to a different scene entirely. And, and what we see in, in verses 9 through 12 is a contrast. While these beasts come up out of the chaos of the sea... Verses 9 through 12 take us into the throne room of God. And God, who's identified as the Ancient of Days, takes his seat on the throne. The picture's being painted. God's saying, look, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Kings come and kings go, but God's hand is at work behind them all. And it's only God's intervention that will bring it to an end one day. And here we see this, this picture of God as the ancient 
of days. One who has always been. See, these kingdoms come and go, but God has always been and will always be. And God is holy. He's clothed in white and his hair is like pure wool. It speaks of his holiness and his purity. The the kingdoms rage with evil intent and rebellion against God, but God is holy and set apart. And God is that judge. God is the judge we see. The ancient of days, as a stream of fire issued and came out from, from him, it says a thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood beside him. God is arrayed in splendor. And it says the court sat in judgment. And the books were open. The ancient of days is holy. The Ancient of Days is on the throne, and the Ancient of Days takes his place on the throne to execute righteous and holy judgment against all who would raise themselves up against him and oppose him. In verse 10, as well as in verse 26, we see this statement, the court sat in judgment. It's this reminder to God's people There's injustice, there's evil, there's suffering, there's trial, there's pain, there's loss. But the Ancient of Days is seated on the throne, and one day he will sit in judgment upon all that which opposes him. God is showing Daniel that at the end of captivity in Babylon, that won't be the end. Suffering is still to come. Nations will rise up. But, but here's the, the profound and resounding message. God wins. God wins. The end is clear for those who know God. God will conquer all evil forces that oppose him. And and as frightening and as terrifying as the beasts are, in, in just a moment, the fourth beast is defeated and the other beasts are stripped of their power. If you look in verse 11, it says, Daniel says, I looked and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, I looked and the beast was killed. Done. And the body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And the, the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken from them, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. They're stripped of their power, though and their, their influence uh, seems to, to still remain for, for a season. God wins. He's victorious. The Ancient of Days sits on his throne, and he will judge. It's a message of encouragement to those who know God. God wins. But it's a message of warning to anyone who doesn't know him. Do you know that God wins? Do you know that God is the holy and righteous judge who sits on the throne and who one day will open the books and will execute judgment and court will be in session? Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? And believer, as as long as we face the, the difficulties and the trials of our present experience and circumstances, let's not forget the end of the story. We know how it ends so we can live faithfully and confidently in the present. God reigns over all nations. And we see in verses 13 through 14 that God will establish his kingdom through Jesus Christ. Our passage introduces a mysterious character in verse 13. Daniel says, I saw, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And then in verse 14 it says, Dominion was given to him uh, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. 
Here we have this description of, uh, of one who is like the Son of Man. It, it's now referencing uh, how God will, will bring about his kingdom and who God will bring about his kingdom through. It says that he's presented like uh, the Son of Man who's coming with the clouds of heaven. Here, here's one who's referenced in, in a, a sense to his humanity, but also he comes on the clouds of heaven, which Psalm 104 uh, verse 3 says is what God does. God makes the clouds his chariots. So there's this human figure, but who's also presented as divine. And this son of man is given dominion over all people, ultimate rule and authority. His, the scope of his kingdom is universal. And it says that it's intended that he might be served. And to serve the king is to worship him. I love what Psalm 2 says in verse 10 through 12. It says, now therefore, O kings, just like this passage is addressing kings and kingdoms, it says in Psalm 2, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's going to come and have dominion and, and be worshipped and served. And his kingdom isn't for a season, but is an everlasting kingdom that will never end. And at, at this time, this, this figure would have been seen as, as, as this um, almost mysterious-like figure that, that God is going to, to bring this one who, who will be like a man and yet be divine that will come about and, and establish God's kingdom and God's kingdom will be given to him. And, and I say here in Daniel 7 that, that God will establish his kingdom through Jesus Christ. How, how in the world could we say that? This is still hundreds of years before Jesus. Well, it was only last, just a few weeks ago, as we were on our journey to the cross, that we saw Jesus quote Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, when, when he stands before the Sanhedrin on trial, and they ask him, they say, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the one that God is going to send? And he says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is saying Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is about him. Jesus' favorite reference to himself in the Gospels is son of man. He's the son of man who comes and, and is given a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, and, and a universal kingdom where he will be worshipped. And, and how is this fulfilled in Jesus? Well, it's actually, it comes about, in, uh, and not all at once, but actually in two parts. It comes first through his resurrection and his ascension. We, we saw last week that it's, it's the resurrection that's the key to understanding the Bible. And in the light of the resurrection, Jesus is saying in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke that after he is crucified and risen and ascends to heaven, the kingdom of God will have been, been brought about. It will, be have, it will have been inaugurated. God's kingdom will have come through the Son of Man. And it's through his death and resurrection that the New Testament says that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And, and he's put to death the works of the devil. And, and the resurrection, Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. And yet, the kingdom of God isn't here fully. The kingdom of God is here through Jesus, but we still await for, for God to establish his kingdom in full, to, to consummate his kingdom in its fullness. 
And in fact, it's, it's also this imagery from Daniel and the Son of Man that Jesus uses to refer not to his first coming when he lived a perfect life of obedience and died a sacrificial death on the cross and rose victoriously from the dead. That's his first coming. But his second coming, when he returns again for his people uh, to, to bring about our full salvation and to bring about judgment to any who reject him, it says that in that day... After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. And it says, The moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels in a loud trumpet call. And they will be gathered together, the elect from the four winds, from one end to heaven to the other. Here's, here's the presentation of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory to, to fulfill his promise and his ultimate salvation. In Revelation, it speaks of, of, of Jesus coming on the clouds and every eye will see him. And he will bring about dominion and his kingdom forever and ever. And what we see in the Bible, what I want us to understand as we walk throughout the book of Daniel, this latter half, is that we live between two worlds, between the world that is now and the world that's to come, but, but also we live between the two comings of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. The kingdom of God has come, and it's come powerfully in the lives of those who, who worship and obey him. But, but hear, hear me clearly, as Daniel says, that, that, that Jesus is king, and his kingdom is over all. He is king whether we recognize him or not. And one day everyone will give an account to him. But he rules and reigns today in the hearts of those who submit themselves to him. And those who know him wait eagerly for him to return when the kingdom of God that we know in part through faith in Christ and the power of God's Spirit at work in us, we will know in full that day. Our waiting will be over. But, but here's what I want you to, to see. When we think about the kingdom coming in Jesus, there are two things this means for us. In light of his first coming and his second coming, we find ourselves waiting, waiting between these two worlds and between these two comings. And what should we do as we wait? Well, we had the key in verse 14. In our waiting for the fullness of the kingdom, we worship. We worship the Ancient of Days who sits on the throne, the, the Son of Man who brings about God's kingdom, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and seals us for the final day of God's redemption. In our waiting, we worship. I think sometimes in our waiting, we get distracted or, or we sit around thinking so much um, about things that, that aren't helpful that we, we, we forget the, the, the work we should be doing in our waiting. Uh, sometimes uh, I uh, have this experience with my daughter. Maybe there's something she's looking forward to. Uh, and she knows that it's coming later in the day, and, and, and it's so hard to wait. And so what she does is she just sits there and looks out the door waiting for the person to come or for us to be ready to go. And, and, and just sitting there and looking, she misses out on doing all the other things that she should be doing in the day, enjoying the day that she has, carrying out the responsibilities that she has for a given day. She loses sight of what she should be doing in her waiting. How often do we do the same? As we wait for Jesus to return and the full experience of God's kingdom, what should we be doing now? Our waiting is a dress rehearsal for what eternity will bring. In eternity, we will sing God's praises and we will uh, live a life that worships God as we walk out obedience to him every day. 
In our waiting, are we worshiping? In our waiting, are we preparing for what we'll do for eternity? We live between these two worlds and these two comings of Christ. And in our waiting, we're called to worship. But there's also a sense in which this universal and, um, and total uh, kingdom that God has in Jesus is, is something that we look forward to with anticipation. And because we anticipate experiencing this fullness, we, we seek his kingdom now and we invite others to enter that kingdom. This is the message of Jesus if you read the Sermon on the Mount. If you have been a part of Treasuring Christ, we, we walked through the Sermon of the Mount last year and we saw that, uh, that to enter the kingdom isn't to do enough good deeds so that God will be pleased with you. To enter the kingdom is to humble yourself and receive the righteousness that comes from God and to submit your life to Him and to give your allegiance to Him. As we anticipate the kingdom, we invite others to enter in. I I want you to think about what what God is saying here. He's saying that in the chaos, God is at work. He's ruling. And the way he is establishing his rule and his kingdom is through Jesus. And what Daniel says in Daniel 7 is what Jesus fulfills in the Gospels. And it's the message that we declare today. That Jesus is the king whose kingdom will reign forever. And his kingdom was established that all, all people, all people everywhere, all nations, tribes and tongues and languages would serve him, would worship him. God made us to worship and the kingdom of God demands that we worship. So I I can't help as I think about what it's saying here in this passage. It's an invitation to worship God. Do you know him and worship him? Have you trusted yourself like Psalm 2 says? Have you kissed the Son? Have you turned from your way and trusted in Him? Look, if if you want to know more about what it means to follow Christ, we want you uh, to to let us know so we can help uh, walk alongside you to, to explain what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God. And in short, it means to, to turn from your sin in your own way and to trust in Jesus and, and his death for you and his resurrection from the dead. That's what it means to enter the kingdom, to not live your own way, but to submit yourself to his way and to find life in him and life that transforms and changes us forever. God's kingdom is established through his son. And then finally, in the, second, the, the latter half of the passage, we see that, that God's people will enjoy God's kingdom forever. I won't read all of it, but as we break down the, the interpretation of the dream, Daniel's disturbed by this, and he wants to know what it means. And, and really, there's kind of two messages. The first message that God gives Daniel is, hey, you can expect trials and suffering under earthly kingdoms. Expect it. It says that, uh, that the, uh, the fourth beast in verse 19, which was different from the others and terrifying and all these things, it says that he makes war against the saints. And in fact, he prevails over them until the Ancient of Days comes and executes judgment for his people and gives them a kingdom. And then as it describes the the horn and the the fourth kingdom uh, in verses 23 through 25, verse 25 says that uh, this one who opposes God will speak words against the Most High and will wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, be given into their hands. It says that he will wear out the saints. He will accuse them and dog them and persecute them and oppose them and even oppose God. You can expect trials and suffering in earthly kingdoms, God says to his people. But you can also be confident that God will give you the kingdom. 
God will give us possession of the kingdom. Verse 18, we will possess the kingdom forever. Verse 22, when the saints possess the kingdom given to them from the Most High. And verse 26, uh, that God will sit in judgment and dominion will be taken away from those who oppose God and they will be destroyed and the kingdom and dominion will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. God is going to give his people his kingdom. Expect trials, but also anticipate receiving God's kingdom. God wins in the end, and that means that it changes how we live in the present, that we have something that's sure. God's promise to us that the kingdom is ours, that cannot be taken away from us. When we face chaos and, and we face uncertainty and we, we face the trials that come from living under earthly kingdoms and the, the persecution, look right now, we, we, feel, we feel a certain crisis about uh, our current situation, but there's also trials and, and persecution and suffering that believers are facing all over the world and that, that we experience in, in ways even here. God says expect that, but allow your anchor to be the sure promise that that you belong to God, that his kingdom is yours. When everything else in our life seems uncertain and unstable, it's the promise of God that seems that, that is sure and unchanging. In fact, this week there is a pastor from Texas, his name's Stephen Yule. Um, put, there's a video posted uh, of him asking the question, do God's promises govern your expectations? And as I listened to it, it just was, um, it, it hit me uh, right, right between the eyes. We're, we're experiencing something right now where our expectations are just all over the map. We, we think we can do more in a day than we can. We, we have expectations of how work or school is going, how our family or relationships or when things are going to get back uh, you know, going again or, or when uh, this thing's going to die down or, or all these expectations of job and, um, and, and other, other dynamics. And, and this question arises is, in our expectations, do, do the promises of God govern our expectations? And, and, and hear clearly what God is saying here. God is, is not saying that we are promised to pass from trials and suffering. God is not saying there's immunity from viruses and personal loss. And, and there's, there's not promised to us a certain job or the education we had hoped for or for our plans to work out the way that we wanted. He doesn't promise us a life free of trials and discouragements and suffering. Now, in fact, God promises us the opposite, to believe in him as well as it's been granted to us to suffer for his sake. But God has promised us to forgive us our sins. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. God has promised to give us himself and to give us a kingdom that cannot be taken from us. God has promised that one day he will make all things right and that he will win. And what God promises, you can count on. What, what God promises, we can, we can build our life on. And we have to ask ourselves, are we allowing these promises to govern our expectations in our daily life? See, this word comes to us, a, a message that God is in control. And it invites us to, to lean on these kind of truths when we face trials and we face sufferings. See, Daniel 7 isn't... I don't believe, written to give us a detailed account of what's to come at the end. But rather, I think it's written to give us confidence that there is one who is in control of all things and who will bring about his kingdom and is working now for the good of his people. Do you know that? Does that comfort you? 
It sounds weird to say this, but God's word says that hard days are ahead. But God will be there. And he won't forsake us. And he'll bring us through them. And his kingdom is both now and will be ours forever. And if you go back and think about Iron Chef and America's Worst Chefs, when we think about our lives and we think about our present circumstance, the kitchen is chaos. But the one who is at work in the kitchen, God, the Ancient of Days, is preparing a feast for us to enjoy with him forever. That's the hope. That's the promise of Daniel 7. When we think about living between two worlds in our present moment, we can have confidence that God is working to bring about his kingdom in Jesus Christ and for the good of his people. Today, we'll, we'll close our time responding to God in worship, singing a, a, a new song, but perhaps familiar to some of you, entitled Ancient of Days. Couldn't be more fitting for us as we close out Daniel 7. And in that song, we'll sing that though the nations rage and kingdoms rise and fall, there's still one king reigning over all. So what do we do with that? It means that we don't have to fear because we know that our God is the ancient of days. He's always been and will always be. He's working now to bring about his kingdom and working for the good of his people. There's none above him and none before him. He's the ancient of days. All time is in his hand. His throne remains. God sits on the throne and is working out his plan. And to him belongs all power and all glory. And as we respond to him, we can trust in his name. Because our God is the ancient of days. Hard things are coming. But God is with us. God will get us through. And God is sitting on the throne. Bringing about his purposes for all who put their trust in him. He's working for our good. Preparing for us a feast to enjoy with him forever. I pray that this for us is what we hold on to. And what governs our thinking, what governs our expectations, and what grounds us in the midst of the, the crisis and the chaos that we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And I pray now, God, that you would just meet us as your people to encourage and strengthen us uh, with your word. Remind us that you win in the end. That you are in control and working out all things for the good of your people. God, you've given us a kingdom that can't be shaken, a kingdom that can't be taken from us. So help that, God, to, uh, to, to give us strength and to give us confidence and boldness in our present moment. God, be with us in our hard moments. Help us turn our eyes to the ancient of days. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.